0: Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we celebrate your greatness this morning. We declare, Lord Jesus, that we are your own and salvation belongs to our God. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I desire to do your will, O oh, my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I I pray, Father, today, in this small congregation of your people, that we would remember the once and for all sacrifice that superseded and fulfilled and completed all that your covenants looked forward to of old. I pray as we study Your very words, Christ, as You walk this earth, declaring the kingdom of God, that they would be written on the tables of our hearts. I pray that our hearts would be unified with the message of Your Scriptures such that it would cleanse us from sin. Lord, purify us and sanctify us for Your will and purposes, setting apart our lives and our lips as worthy tools to announce and to proclaim What you have done, Lord Jesus, fully and finally in Christ. What a privilege, God, and what a joy it is to be used as a vessel of yours to bring glory to your name and to triumph to herald your truth. I pray that you would help us, Lord, this day to remember the value, Lord, immeasurably so of what you have declared to us, that you might equip us, Lord, with zeal and strength and most of all your Holy Spirit, to first understand and secondly declare in the congregation and to this world the marvelous things that our God has done for us. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. In a moment I'll have you stand with me again for the reading of the Word this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15 if you would. In Matthew chapter 15 we have the narrative and the record of Jesus interaction with the Pharisees and then there's a shift and he begins to interact with the Canaanite woman in surprising ways and so equally surprising as Jesus altercation with the religious elite so is his altercation if you will or his interaction better said with this Gentile woman so stand with me if you would and let's read Matthew 15 verses 18 and 20 through 28 Matthew 15:18, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, Is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly, says the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Gospel Blindside. To indicate that there are surprising elements in the story of the gospel. Surprising then, and I would submit to you especially in light of our cultural sensibilities in this day and age, surprising now. Does this record of Jesus' interaction with both the Pharisees and secondly this Canaanite woman hit us blindside? Do we find it surprising is it striking what Jesus has here proclaimed and declared, and even the attitude that he 's displayed? I think if we pause and read into the story just a bit or perhaps perhaps put ourselves in the shoes of one or two of the characters here, we would have to say yes today, this day, even as it was in christ's day this is this is a something that is akin to gospel truth that is that is when it is. Rightly divided and declared, the truth of God's holy word tends to hit the hearer suddenly and, as far as his flesh is concerned, devastatingly. And if he does not repent, devastatingly, in the sense of a declaration of judgment, it startles him, and it's as though he were looking the other way. When Christ proclaimed the word of the kingdom, it came as a shock and a surprise. An interruption, a siren, an alarm bell, an unprecedented clarion call to the human heart and ear in such a way that it caused people to react in various ways, for some like the Pharisees, they were offended, angered, and even stirred to murderous intent, setting their face against Christ. verse twelve the Pharise- or the disciples. Equally surprised, though receiving Christ's words differently, say to Jesus. Then the disciples came to him and said, "Do you not know that the or do you, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying?" Sir, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Do you not know that the Pharisees, the ruling elite, those who in many cases probably had memorized the Torah had memorized the Word of God written and codified up to this point. We're blindsided by your words, Christ. We're not sure what to think half the time. And we are asking you to constantly explain yourselves in the parables that you deliver. It's not what we expected to hear from a Messiah, even though there were those among the hearers who were well-versed in the Scriptures of old. Imagine for a moment stepping into traffic, a busy street, only looking one direction. You're not expecting any cars to come because you're looking down the street this way, but you step into that busy traffic and aren't you surprised when in your left hand, from your left hand, a car hits you all of a sudden? And this is often the way the truth of God's word hits the unsuspecting victim, especially when we're blinded by, this, by our sin and the flesh. Often we are like confident pedestrians stepping into a busy street upon only looking one direction. And aren't we shocked to hear and to feel the sucker punch to the sinful nature when we hear something in God's word, saying, in words akin to what came to David of old through the prophet, you, O king, are the man. Remember the story of the prophet or the story from the prophet Nathan of old, when David had been in self deception and great and gross sin. Yet he was confident in his position, no doubt because he was king after all and had authority and felt safe in whatever decisions autonomously that he was making. Whatever arbitrary way he sought to exercise his rule, since there was no immediate challenger to that authority, he went on unconvicted in his sin for a time. But then a man stepped through his door one day, the prophet, and he told David a story of a rich man who had plenty of sheep, flocks and flocks and herds on hills of sheep and livestock and so on. And there was also a poor man, who had but one. And this wasn't, a, this wasn't an animal that would be raised to eat, but this was a man, an animal who was part of the family, indeed like a pet and part of the home. Nathan proceeds with the story and the parable and he tells David that this rich man went to this poor man and took the one lamb that he had and he took it to entertain his guests because he didn't want to slaughter any of his own flock. David immediately is irate He reacts in righteous zeal. And he says, tell me the name and the address of that individual that he might justly pay for his sin this day. You remember in so many words, the charge from the prophet Nathan, you, O king, are the man. You, O king, are the man. And I imagine he felt the way I felt when I would get in trouble and find myself having to talk to the principal at the school when I was found out in the mischievous ways in my grade school years. Or when your brother tells on you and your deepest, darkest, darkest secret is revealed to your parents. And you hear your father hollering in that stern voice to come and account for yourself before your parents, before that authority figure. And you hear that message, you, O king, are the man. This is the way the gospel, when it's truly preached, reaches the heart of the sinful individual. It is usually responded to in one of two ways. Offense, like the Pharisee, or conviction and crying out in anguish and repentance of sin. When the gospel was preached in the mouth of that first wave of spirit-inspired apostles, what did the thousands cry out? They cried out, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved upon the charge of murder of the Son of God? They were blindsided with the truth. And they confessed that they of all men were most guilty, most worthy of hell and judgment. What must we do to be saved? Those are the two responses. Offense and a hardness of heart. A setting your face against the truth of the gospel. Or a repentance saying, woe is me, I am undone, I am the chief of sinners, I repent in sackcloth and ashes the account of Jesus interaction with the religious elite in this section in Matthew 14 and the subsequent exchange with the Canaanite woman of this Matthew 15 as the effect has the same effect on the unsuspecting hearer even today and especially for those who are conditioned by the humanistic sedatives of modern culture I didn't do my due diligence and research for you to give you the exact numbers, but recently there was a poll by Barner Research or something, and a group of pastors, a large segment of pastors was asked, Do you believe that the Scriptures, the whole counsel of God speak to this? And they had a handful of politically incorrect, kind of touchy social issues, politics and so on. And to a man, about 80 or 90% said absolutely, the Bible does speak to those things. It speaks sufficiently, after all, to all areas of life, faith and practice and thought. And interesting in the study, though, when the second question came, how often do you speak of these things or do you touch these things from the pulpit? Then you saw the percentage of disparity. Whereas 80 or 90% said the Bible speaks to these things, there was something like only 10 or 20 I can't remember exactly what the percentages were that dared to touch them from the pulpit. Why is this? Why is this? This is because we know full well that it's not that the word doesn't speak to things, but it is that the word speaks to things in such a way our ears do not itch to hear If we were to declare the whole counsel of God consistently from the pulpit and in our own lives, preaching the word of Christ to ourselves as we read the scriptures, it more often than not comes as a sucker punch. It blindsides us. It lays us low in our sin and stupidity and calls the wicked man who is lost to repent. Here in this section... After Jesus Christ's words had been rejected by the elite, he moves on to a surprising place. And even the narrative, or even the setting of this narrative, is surprising when we take it into view. Note in verse 21 Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And after Jesus had alienated, because of the truth that he spoke, the influential and impressive Pharisees who were offended at what he spoke. He retreated to the nether regions of the outcast peoples and here the narrative continues to unfold. Jesus, as you notice in the Gospels, does not spend too much time in the cultural epicenter of Israel. You can hardly find him in Jerusalem until the end of his ministry, but you will find him in Decapolis. You will find him in Galilee. You will find him in this record in the further regions north on the borders of the Gentile regions, indeed, in Tyre and in Sidon. You'll seldom find Christ regularly interacting with the self-important, self-justifying, religious, political, influential elite of His day. But you will often find Him with the lost, the blind, the crippled, the mute, as He healed a whole group that fell into that category later in the same chapter. You will often find him ministering where hearts are soft and conditioned as the Beatitudes that he had spoken already told us that blessed are not the Pharisee and the proud and the hard hearted, the self-important and the self-indulged, but instead the poor in spirit. Matthew 5 verse 3, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful and the pure in heart. This is surprising to us. I submit to you today, as much as it was then, that God's word, these truths, would be graced to be heard by those who are not of, of no account as far as man's is concerned but instead among those who are broken and aware of their own weakness, their own frailty and depravity, and thus made ripe for the seed of the word to produce fruit. This morning, let's consider this section in four, head, or in four basic headings, or four dramatic aspects of this chapter in Jesus' ministry. I find these four points surprising in the narrative. First of all, the confrontation of culture. The way that Christ confronted the culture. He confronted sin and, so, and in so doing he confronted the reigning mindset of the day. And it was no holds barred direct approach right to the heart of the problem. We would do well to heed Christ's admonition in this regard. Secondly, there's the contrast of hearers. Contrasting hearers. You can't get much farther apart from, than a Pharisee or a scribe and a Canaanite woman, a Syrophoenician woman on the outskirts as a political outcast, as a lowly and rejected ethnic peoples. Yet these two hearers occur, that is, Christ's words to these two demographics, if you will. This lonely woman with a demon-oppressed daughter is back-to-back with the story of Jesus declaring His words and kingdom to the scribes and Pharisees and other hearers. Number three, cross-references. It's surprising as we relate this story to other passages of Scripture to see how there is, here again, fulfilled prophecy, application of Jesus' former words, and also a pattern that Jesus establishes. This isn't uh, just a one-case scenario, but we see in other situations how Jesus has reached out to individuals under these similar conditions. And number four, we see a surprising record of the character of Christ. How Christ interacts in this regard is definitely surprising given the popular notions of the character of Christ that we're used to hearing or used to uh, thinking about today. So first of all, now in some detail, let's consider this dramatic aspect of this chapter in Jesus' ministry. Number one, confrontation of culture. Reading again and backing up just a little bit before the story of the interaction with the Canaanite woman Let's, uh, let's listen in to the interaction at the tail end of Jesus' altercation with the Pharisees as he instructs the disciples as to the nature of true defilement. And you'll find this in 15 through 20, Matthew 15. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Pause there for a moment. You could substitute perhaps that word parable for riddle. Peter is asking for more clarification. Why? Because the gospel had blindsided even those who were willing to hear. This was so unexpected that Jesus' own disciples were not aware exactly what Jesus meant. Explain the parable. Explain the riddle to us, he asked. And Christ says in verse 16, And he said, Are you also still without understanding? And then he proceeds to explain the nature of sin... The nature of defilement in contradistinction with what the Pharisees had proclaimed and stood for. Verse 17, he says Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You can see here in this catalog of defilement that there's at least four commandments that Christ references directly. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And neither under that heading shalt thou commit sexual immorality, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, and neither again under that heading shalt thou slander. Christ opens with this overview statement, out of the heart come evil thoughts. We're reminded again, reaching back in the context of Jesus' instructions, that the moral law which he reiterates here, he has said, reaches deep within the heart and although these actions and evident sins are testimony to the defilement of the inward nature of man, it is not just that these things are committed, but indeed that our very nature is corrupt to its core. Remember Matthew five you've heard it said of those of old, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, will be liable to judgment. Later, 27, Matthew 5, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we see from the heart proceeds any manner of reasonings and considerations, contrivances, evil thoughts. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Even the thought of murder, the thought of adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander, and the like, these are what defile a person, not whether or not they wash their hands before eating. Sin is an internal problem. The Pharisees were worried about externals. They were like whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. They were like those who cleaned merely the outside of the dish, but left the inside of the dish untouched. And their contents there to rot, and to fester, and to produce all manner of infectious disease. Spiritually speaking, in Mark chapter seven, the parallel account of this message, where Jesus confronts culture by speaking to matters of the heart in regard to sin, the list is even expanded. In Mark seven twenty one, he says, "For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder." Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Though this list is not exhaustive in every particular sense, when Christ opens a list like this with every manner of evil thought, we can see that He is giving us a few examples of the heart of man that in any, and, that, and in many and sundry forms shows itself to harbor on the inside things that render us in enmity with the Lord. I submit to you that this is a surprising indictment. Although some of these sins we would affirm, generally even with culture today, after all, you shouldn't steal. Sometimes adultery is even still considered wrong and culturally, morally reprehensible. We shouldn't cheat on our spouses and so on. But I, would su- I submit to you that this catalog of defilement reaches far more and is far more specific into areas of the heart and life than we dare to think about very often or indeed to speak about to others and preach from our pulpits these days. One case in point came from a recent Christian film came to my attention as I watched the film. There were certain redemptive elements of the film, to be sure, but I want to bring to your attention one deficit therein. The movie was called God is Not Dead. In that movie, there's an interaction with a minister and a woman who indeed is caught in sexual promiscuity in the film. She's living with a boyfriend whom she is not married to. She herself a confessing Christian. He himself a confessing atheist. She realizes that something isn't quite right with her life, so she goes and seeks counsel with this minister. And mind you, this is just a fictional portrayal. It's a Christian movie. When she sits down with the minister, the minister proceeds to tell her some kind of psychoanalytical poppycock that the reason you're doing what you're doing is because you're trying to you know, a uh, counter for some insecurities, and you're reaching out for this relationship to fill you and to satisfy you, and you can never be fully satisfied and filled up. We, you're looking for love in all the wrong places or some kind of stuff like that. Never once in this interaction, in this film, did this pastor say something like Christ said right here out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft false witness, and slander. In this fictional depiction, this woman indeed was guilty of sexual immorality. But she was not brought to repentance by that interaction with this minister, this fictional account in this film. But instead, she was made to, to feel like there was a better option. Yes, indeed, there is a better option in Christ. But how is the gospel to hit us? Is the gospel to be opened like a briefcase of a salesman who says, go ahead and try this on for size? Is the gospel to be offered to a sinful world as just one among a plethora of options? And hey, are you willing to bet that it's going to be a little bit more fun and satisfying if you just try Jesus? If we preach the gospel in that way, we have not done justice to the word of God. Because so long as we entertain sins like this in our heart, we stand outside the favor of the Lord, at least to that degree, and our life cannot be blessed. And the way that Christ deals with this kind of sin is to speak to it directly and call for repentance. And it's the kind of message that doesn't leave people, hey, that sounds like a good idea, but it leaves them broken in tears of repentance, or it leaves them offended. And walk storming out of the pastor's office saying, How dare you self-righteously condemn me of these things? What? Are you saying you're better than I am? No. I'm saying Christ is better than us all. And His perfection is what holiness is. And to the degree that we fall short, we must repent. And the Word of God is that swift and powerful two-edged sword to do that surgery and to reach deep within the soul of man and to call out that adultery and sensuality of heart and action and deed and to draw us close to Him again so that we reach out in our weakness for Christ, knowing full well that we are sinners. And repentance looks more like a tearful breaking down and leaving behind a reprehensible turning from our sin out of disgust and not just a new course of action with a whole lot of promise. Jesus confronted culture when he confronted sin. We see this in this catalog of defilement. Second, we see that sin by popular notion had a different description in this day and age. People were more concerned with externals and social norms than they were these issues that proceeded from the heart. As long as you were washing your hands before the meals, that was enough to put you in the good graces of the company you kept so far as the scribes and Pharisees were concerned. After all, that's what they were concerned with, with Christ and His disciples in fifteen one, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, "'Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders?' For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded to honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. And so you see the commandment, the fifth commandment, Honor your father and mother. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land had been a subordinate and buried and indeed reviled commandment for the sake of these useless, worthless, external social norms and traditions that the scribes and Pharisees had substituted for the clear teaching of the holiness, the clear and arguable word of God. And so for the sake of their tradition, Christ said in verse 6, they had made void the word of God. Thus they were worthy of this indictment. In verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And Later again, you remember that Jesus says in 16, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Now today, do we have this gnat and camel problem? Are we want to strain out the gnat in our social norms while we swallow a camel today? Are we guilty of something like washing our hands just so, good hygiene, maybe even good nutrition... Good social presentation, maybe a dignified presentation of self, maybe reaching the fashionable standards of society. We look good on the outside, yet on the inside we have this dry rod of the human soul, these sins that never really get touched. Everyone looks good on the outside and passes muster according to the social niceties. Meanwhile, inside we're full of dead man's bones. I submit to you this message. This countercultural confrontation of sin blindsides us today, most of us, just as it did at the time when it was preached in Christ's era. This is kind of a, a funny way to say it, but I would submit to you, if you saw if most people saw someone else picking their nose in public, it would be more reprehensible to them than knowing they were sleeping with their boyfriend or with their girlfriend. I, have you ever heard about how people denigrate the types of, of people who shop at Walmart? There's even whole websites given to a sort of despising of the least of these, if you will. People who wear sweatpants in public, who aren't very presentable, and maybe they have health issues and obesity problems and, and so on. And you find much more cultural outrage to someone who wears sweatpants in public in these cultural full pause than those who will recoil in disgust at the fact that we are indulging in so much sin beneath the surface. Meanwhile, while we worry about these little ways that we are seen of men underneath the surface, people are practicing any number of sundry offenses against the Holy One of Israel by practicing sexual licentiousness, consuming a steady diet of corrupt media, which, sensual, which uh, sen- sensationalize, sensationalizes sin. Most of us in our intake uh, in this society today are guilty of the evil thoughts and a preoccupation with murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slandered just by the television we watch. I mean, those words listed as they are would make a pretty good tagline for most of today's programming, for heaven's sake. Are we guilty of those things directly? Well, it doesn't matter so much as long as we, as far as sin before a holy God is concerned, if we indulge ourselves with the evil thoughts that that kind of meditation fosters, and this is the world that we live in. Sin, by popular notion, is the externals, the stupid little things, making ourselves presentable to each other. And instead, these easy targets and scapegoats of, oh, I don't want to be like that person or that person, serve only for our self-justification. And seldom do we get to the heart of our own sin. Or do we, if we are following the Lord with a certain degree of sanctification, have the presence of mind and the conviction to preach the true word of God, to bring that confrontation to culture that would say, this Programming is reprehensible before the Lord because from it stem all manner of evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And so this indeed, this indictment of the sins of the day, is every bit as relevant today as it was then, and it is a dramatic aspect in Jesus' ministry. He confronted the culture head on. He listed this, and he did so by listing a catalog of defilements, as against the sins by popular notion of the day. Question number eighteen in the Westminster Shorter Catechism has a definition of sin which it draws from this passage and others, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein too man fell, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate where uh, estate wherein too man fell. In other words, what is the nature of defilement? What is sin? The answer comes as a summary of biblical, a number of biblical texts. The sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. And so we see two aspects of our sin nature in that definition. One is, it comes from a heart that is deceitfully wicked. And secondly, that is the source and stem for all the various transgressions that we commit on a daily basis. And for this reason, Jesus himself says that there is no digestive system, if you will, that can expel such a malady as this. Verse 17, do you not see whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. One might eat tainted and corrupt food and might feel sick to his stomach for a while. But unless it's an extreme poisonous case, his body will take care of it in due course. And his immune system will expel that foreign substance. What if your whole being is corrupt? Well, then you need new birth. Then you need a resurrection. Then you must be born again. And then and only then will the fountain of our heart produce new fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, in opposite, directly opposite to this list that Christ gave here love, joy, peace, patience goodness, kindness, and so on. Against such there is no law. And this is the message that confronts us today as it confronted this system then. There's no way to deal in and of ourselves with the sin nature that we are all condemned with. Yet in Christ is healing and hope. But His methods, His prescription, His diagnosis from the great physician is one that points directly to our sin and calls us to repentance and faith in Him. The second dramatic aspect of this chapter of Jesus' ministry that we see here is the contrast in the hearers. Again, we contrast the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus' message to the Gentile woman. Notice, first of all, there's a ceremonial uncleanliness to some degree that seems to be alluded here and the washing of hands before a meal. In the Old Covenant, there were certain laws that had to do with teaching in a didactic way. To lead people to an understanding of the holiness of God, the people were commanded for, for different washings, especially the priests before they entered the temple, and different uh, liturgies and sacrifices and ceremonies. And also, there was a certain separation that was required among the peoples. They were not to fraternize, especially in marriage, with the pagan neighbors. And in so doing, these ceremonial aspects of otherness or holiness and set-apartness were there to teach us what it means to be in Christ and what it means to be holy. And it's interesting because we see a shift in the culture here. It's interesting because those who are most ardently holding to those ceremonial distinctives, the scribes and the Pharisees, obviously misunderstood their purpose because they rejected the Christ, they rejected their Messiah because they thought through ceremonies and, and washings and the like, they were cleaning the inside or they were clean, holy, through and through. But in fact, they were sin-ridden and they had the uh, condemnation of judgment hanging over their head. Meanwhile, there were those among the outcasts and the people who were otherwise rejected, ethnically speaking, because of their ethnic ceremonial uncleanliness. And these are the ones Jesus went and reached. And Jesus went away from there, at least in this case, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. After Jesus, again, surprisingly, does not answer her prayer until the end. We see what is the difference between this outcast woman and the religious elite. It was a matter of the heart. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. And so we see the substance, the shadow that is giving way to the substance. What the Old Testament and Old Covenant had prophesied and prefigured and taught us we see now evident here. It wasn't the outside that was the issue, but the outside was a teaching tool to show us that the inside was the issue. Later in the Scriptures, we see indeed in Christ and the holiness that He offers that the Abrahamic promise of being a blessing to all nations began to be fulfilled. This Canaanite woman would join the ranks of many and Paul's missionary journeys, and many even today who are coming into the kingdom from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. In Ephesians 2, 4, the apostle declares that the middle wall of separation, of ceremonial uncleanliness, if you will, between the outcast Gentiles and the privileged Jews has come down in Christ. And now all who are in him are the new Israel and will populate the new Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, we have a surprising interaction where a gospel truth comes by way of vision to Peter and he's blindsided by the reality when he sees this picture, a net full of unclean animals being dropped to him in a vision and the command by the, by the voices, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And the message then interpreted is clear that the time of the Gentiles and their coming into the kingdom is now upon us. And so we see, even in this narrative in Christ's own work, a shift from what was ceremonially ceremonially, ceremonially unclean in the Old Covenant and these customs that the people had. We see a shift uh, from that to its fulfillment in Christ. So that's a little bit of the context and the background between these two kinds of people groups Here is one who the Pharisees would otherwise ostracize and denigrate and say they have no place worshiping within the temple of God's holy presence. They should not be included within the borders of the privileged people. Yet Christ went out. Christ went out from these areas where the people were centrally located in their culture and he reached the hearts of... And he reached the heart of one woman, a Canaanite woman, in the outskirts of the outcast Israel with a message of cleanliness and holiness in him and healing for her daughter. And indeed, she evidenced the faith, a miraculous faith. And secondly, we see under this contrast of hearers, on one side those of social privilege and on on the other side those who realize their depravity. There's two audiences who self-assess in light of Christ's words. The first audience, of course, is the scribes and Pharisees who, when they compare their own mindset and their way of thinking in light of what Christ has said, are offended and storm away in violence and obstinance to the message of Christ. They are the ones of social privilege, the ones who are satisfied in what they themselves have acquired. They're the ones who do not see themselves in light of the holiness of God as ones who need salvation. They find themselves to be pretty well satisfied, thank you, in the successful life that they had been leading. But on the other side, the audience represented by this Canaanite woman is an audience who, upon the self-assessment of Christ's presence, realizes their depravity. She came, it says in verse 25, and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, Is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? What is Jesus calling this woman in this situation? He's calling her a dog. Is that surprising? What if someone called you a dog? How would you respond? Well, what if that someone is the Lord of glory? Who sees exhaustively into the heart of man and knows the end from the beginning and in him and him alone is the power of holiness and sanctification. What is the right answer then? Offense? She said, verse 27, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She did not tell Jesus I am not a dog. Sure, I may have a lot of problems w- and things, and I may not live up to your standards, but at least let me some ha- retain some shred of human dignity. Who do you think you are? Call me that sort of thing. You can imagine that reaction in our day and age, could you not? You can imagine when someone receives this kind of charge that they would recoil in offense. Perhaps even slap the person in the face who told them such a thing. And say, get out of here. What are you talking about? That is the most offensive thing I have ever heard. But this was a message that came from Christ. And instead of responding in self-righteousness and recoiling in offense, the woman recognized, as it were, her own depravity. She says, yes, I can identify with a dog. But even dogs... Need the scraps from the table. She said, "Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, "O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire." And her daughter was healed instantly. And there you see a shift. Jesus does not address her as a dog now, but as a woman of great faith, and a compliment no higher could ever come from the lips of the Lord of glory. There are two aspects in our, uh, to our being in the course of our testimony. One is the depravity of a lawless, mangy dog. and The second aspect is the faith as a righteous, or the, as faith as a gracious, unmerited gift given to us that gives us our identity, our sense of self-worth and grants to us reasons to live and is our new identity. That is Christ Himself. Without Him, we are dogs. With Him, we are privileged sons and daughters resurrected to newness of life. Jesus had specific names for the Pharisees as well. The other group of hearers. Do you remember what he referred to them as? Any number of things. Sons of the devil. Snakes. Whitewashed tombs. Brood of vipers. What would have been the right response? Hatred? Animosity? Kill this man. Who does he think he is? And every time Jesus rightly describes the condition of their heart, they recoil in self-defense. No, the right response would have been... You are right. I am a snake. I have united myself against the Lord of glory. I have rebelliously bought the lie of Satan that I can decide for myself and earn for myself right standing before the Lord. What must I do to be saved? Those of social privilege, of sound and successful standing in this life are most likely to react in self in in, uh, self-preservation and in offense and in self-defense when Christ and His Holy Word reveals to them who they truly are. But those who have a familiarity with their own brokenness and sinfulness indeed are more likely to be found in the second camp with this Canaanite woman, recognizing their depravity. There are others who joined her, but again... As we mentioned before, they came from the unlikely hovels and the areas where people were more likely to be considered outcasts, the weak and the foolish and the rejected, and not the self-important and influential. Finally, under this contrast of hearers, we have an unlikely confession of faith. What does this woman say of this man? Again, this is Jesus Christ, dressed in common robes, walking. He doesn't appear to her on a white horse. He doesn't appear as a triumphant king with impressive apparel and a long train of dignitaries at his command. He appears as a lowly commoner walking into this area of Tyre and Sidon. She besieges him. She seeks him out and says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. How did this woman know that this was the Christ, the Messiah? The Lord, the son of David, one in the kingly lineage of David of old, who had the right and throne and scepter of righteousness at his command. What an unlikely confession of faith. Well, it was her heart and the spirits moving upon her that caused her to react in this way. And this becomes a pattern throughout all Scripture, and I hope it's a pattern in your and my own heart, that those who would... That those who would not be likely to see these things by virtue of our intellect, our understanding, our history, our pedigree, or our birth and privilege might offer beautiful worship as the weak and beggarly corners of society. Think of the young virgin, Mary, the unlikely candidate, when she was told that she would be the mother of Jesus She responded in the Magnificat, one of the most beautiful expressions, confession of faith and worship that we have in the Holy Scriptures. Think of another woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And Christ himself said, even though she was despised by the Pharisees and by the disciples even, and particularly Judas who considered this costly ointment a severe waste of money to be used in that fashion, what did Christ say of her? This lowly woman who has made this sacrificial act of worship to me will be spoken of forever. And thus she is canonized and her story is written within the pages of Holy Writ for us to appreciate this unlikely confession of faith among the weak and beggarly segments and corners of society. And also the thief on the cross who confessed in his dying breath that Christ was his way of salvation, and asked him, pleaded with him in a desperate prayer, much like what we hear before today, Lord, remember me in paradise. And so the contrast of hearers is a dramatic aspect of this chapter in Jesus' ministry. On the one side, you have the social privili- those who are socially privileged. On the other side, you have the ones who are self-conscious of their own depravity. Thirdly, cross-references. This section of Scripture is surprising again in light of Isaiah 29. I just want to keep reminding you of this because the context of Jesus' reference, the context surrounding Jesus' reference of Isaiah 29 comes out again in the text. You don't need to turn there necessarily, but Isaiah 29, verses 18 through 21 read, in that day is the day of the Messiah's advent." the day of the Lord, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And there we see very clearly the contrast between the Pharisees and this woman who fits well among the meek and poor of mankind, who in her unlikely confession of faith exalted the Holy One of Israel. Secondly, in cross-reference in this section, we have an application of Matthew 10, verses 12 through 15, where Christ commands the disciples as they go out two by two to find the homes that are worthy of the message and if they are unworthy, to shake the dust off your feet, as it were, and leave. And now, having uh, having spoken to the scribes and the Pharisees in this, in, the, in this interaction, in the beginning of Matthew 15, Jesus indeed does exactly that. He exemplifies the charge that he had given his disciples. After, they went, after the Pharisees were offended at his saying, Jesus went, verse 21, away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And finally, another cross-reference, which evidences to us that there is a pattern here, and this isn't just a one-time event as far as how how Christ works is concerned. In John chapter 4, we have the testimony of another woman, a Samaritan woman, who comes to gather water from the well and encounters surprisingly, the gospel. And she is blindsided with the message that if she drinks from living water, she will never drink again. What does Jesus tell her? He tells her more than the benefit of salvation. He also confronts her sin. He says that you have have had five husbands and the man that you are with is not your husband at all. How does she respond to this invasion of her privacy? That's none of your business, sir. Excuse me. I would like to know how you found that out. None of, nothing of the kind. This woman repented of her sexual immorality. And in fact, this became part of her testimony. She went back to her village and declared to everyone there, Come here and see the man who told me everything I ever did. And so they did. They came to him by the throngs in another unlikely group among the Samaritans. And in John chapter 4 verse 42 we have yet another surprising confession of faith. What were these people saying when they came to Christ? They said to the woman, "It is no longer because what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this indeed, that this is indeed the savior." Of the world. You had one adulterer. You had one loose living woman. Who the whole town probably knows. The kind of woman that has ill repute. A poor reputation of one who gets around, if you will. And when this woman's dirty laundry of sin is exposed. And when she receives the living water of revelation of Jesus Christ, her Lord she brings that testimony of exposed and forgiven sin back to her people. And these people cannot believe the change until they meet Christ herself, and then the testimony of their experience with Christ supersedes what she has told them already, and they find themselves confessing with this unlikely Samaritan, this is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. These are the kinds of transformations that the gospel truly preached can truly achieve when the Holy Spirit is pleased to take the unadulterated whole counsel of God and apply it to the heart of those of the lost and the lowly. And finally, let us consider the character of Christ. Four dramatic aspects of this chapter in Jesus' ministry. There's the confrontation of culture. There's the contrast of the hearers. There's these cross-references, related stories and sections of Scripture, and there's finally the character of Christ exhibited. Now listen in light of common ideas of who Jesus is that are perpetrated today as we follow the response of Christ to this woman's prayerful and desperate attempts to receive healing from Him. Verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. First of all, he did not answer her a word. Christ simply ignored her. He did not respond. Does this sound like the loving Jesus that we are often familiar with in the popularized notion of today's preaching? There's something unexpected here. Not only did Jesus ignore her first plea, but it gets worse, if you will. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. The implication could be just heal her so she gets out of here. Or this could be an utter rejection of this woman by by the disciples themselves. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I'm not interested in saving you. Shocking. She came and knelt before him, saying, this woman continues to plead, this importunate woman, Lord, help me. And he answered, in the most striking language of all, as we've already read in verse 26, is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? First, he ignores her. He says he's not interested in her type. And thirdly, he calls her her type. She's a dog. 27, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Today, we are taught that the power of the gospel is in the presentation on a humanistic basis. We are more often of a mind and instructed that unless we do it with a smile and have open arms, greet them at the door with a great experience and a free latte and a whole presentation that doesn't last too long and never touches on anybody's toes and never deals with any of the weighty sins of the day that you can grow a church. But I'm telling you that the power to save is not within the human presentation, but it is within the Spirit's work to touch on the inside. And in this situation this woman continued to cry out for the Lord, even though the circumstances looked like a slam door in her face. Tim Keller tweeted recently a quote that I think applies to this concept. We're considering here this unexpected character of Christ evident in this exchange. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Sometimes when we encounter Christ, it does not feel like a warm, fuzzy, bare droop hug. Sometimes it feels like the chastening of Hebrews 12, which is painful for a season. But if the Spirit is in you and you are in the Word, you know that in the end it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those that have been trained by it. And sometimes Christ, for the love of His own children, interacts with us in this way. If your God never disagrees with you, you're probably just worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You ought to expect as you grow in Christ to have stones of hardness of heart, of unrepentance, and of areas of blindness turned over routinely. You ought to expect as you read the Word and listen to its declaration to be uncomfortable at times as the Lord puts His finger on a need for your own repentance and growth. And you ought to expect sometimes when you pray... And beseech the Lord that sometimes, for a sovereign purpose, the answer is delayed in coming. Matthew Henry says of this exchange, Sometimes God seems not to regard his people's prayers like a man asleep or astonished, nay to be angry with him. But it is to prove and so to improve their faith, to make his after appearances for them the more glorious to himself and the more welcome to them. Sometimes when we pray and we ask God, save me from a circumstance or any situation, it seems that the heavens are brass and the doors are closed and we do not have the Savior's ear. If we continue in that attitude of prayer, what purpose does it serve? Well, in light of this story here and in light of this quote, From the ever devotional Matthew Henry, it is to prove and to improve our faith. This is the purpose of trials. Going through seasons where the answer is long in waiting, yet we remain desperate and needy, serves to make conspicuous our faith to others. And it also serves to bolster and strengthen our own faith in the Lord. And to make the after appearance, that means the final answer of Christ, that much more sweet to us. Glory, more glory to God and more welcome to us is the answer from a loving father when he answers our prayer after a season of sometimes needed chastisement. Jesus' interaction with this woman was providential and strategic. This interaction answers that question... And we often ask, why does answered prayer arrive at times only after a season of imploring anguish? Why does answered prayer sometimes only arrive after extended seasons of imploring anguish? Well, for one thing, our Lord is glorified in rendering our faith conspicuous. And when the answer does come, we are far more likely to spontaneously erupt in praise, singing to him, O Lord, Son of David, you are the Savior of the world. Glory to you. You are worth the wait. I love you, and I thank you that you discipline me as your child, that I might be shaped and molded into my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's own image. Let's close in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that if your word hits us close to home in any way today, as individuals who may stand in need of any kind of repentance, that we would take this message to heart and would receive it with an awareness of our own depravity. May we be like the Canaanite woman and less like the Pharisee. May we be those who are shaped, Lord Jesus, by the power of God and not by the power of men or ourselves. May we, Lord Jesus, willfully and quickly abandon anything that might stand in the way of our faith and our continuance in prayer and worship of you, knowing that you are a rewarder of those that diligently seek you. And knowing upon your answer, you will show our faith and improve our faith for your glory and how sweet it will be to us. We thank you For your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.